Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. I think we are all missing in the end that this election, certainly at the beginning, is still going to be dominated by old white people. Uh huh. And a lot of those old white people have email and probably don't mind giving five, ten bucks. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's something attractive if you're a senior citizen on a fixed income of participating in the political process and sending five dollars of fu money to your candidate of choice mm-hmm. knowing that actually nowadays it might make a difference so yeah. you know there could be a surprise here mm-hmm. all right and welcome listeners we have already started uh the newest edition of politico's nerdcast i'm your host scott bland i'm on the line today with politico's national Corris- uh, political correspondent mark caputo hi mark hey how you doing scott i'm doing great and we are talking about the latest entrant in the 2020 presidential race former vice president joe biden that's what our first topic is this week on the nerdcast biden is in the umpteenth actually i think the 20th uh, democrat in the presidential field we're going to talk about why he's running what the campaign might look like and and what we're going to be looking out for in this first week, month, uh, uh, next 18 months of this presidential campaign. Plus, we're going to talk a little bit more about things getting nasty between the White House and Democrats in Congress when it comes to congressional oversight of the administration. As always, we are taping this a little bit before noon Eastern on Thursday. Today, that's April the 25th. So it's all up to date as of then. We know Biden's in the race. We don't know what he's going to say the first time he goes out in public uh, on this thing yet. Uh, but uh, I'm, we sure do look forward to finding out. So let's get started. Our first data point, the number three. This is Joe Biden's third bid for the White House. He's run before in 1988. He ran in 2008. But this is his first time entering as a front runner. And, uh, Mark, that's part of the reason it took Biden so long to jump in at this point in, in a field that – and now, historically speaking, he's not waiting that long. But, you know, he, he's the 20th guy in, right? <laughs> right. Biden is late relative to everyone else being early. But, you know, this is April of the year before the November election. So we're just in this constant state of kind of constant elections and the fact that we're considering Joe Biden a late entrant when he's kind of historically not – speaks to our times. That's a good point. That's a good point. So, Mark, you, you and, and our colleague Natasha Karecki and, and some other folks at Politico have spent a lot of time over the past few months trying to, um, you know, penetrate the veil of secrecy around Biden's deliberations and get inside his head and his advisor's head about uh, exactly what they were thinking about this race and whether or not to run. Ultimately, obviously, this morning he said, yes, he is running. But let, let me let me let's just go through some reasons here that that have been, you know, the big topics of conversation and, and big things in in Biden's mind about uh, weighing on this decision in 2020. So and 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 you can tell us how he put those concerns aside. You know, the, the first one, right, is pretty obvious. Is he too old to be president? Well, Obviously, Biden doesn't think he's too old to be president. I think if you could put a different lens on it, is that Biden thinks that the times are far more cruel than they used to be for candidates such as him. Specifically, Biden on Tuesday 
spoke to two of my sources who are donors, and to both of them, he mentioned, quote, they're going to come after my family. That is, Joe Biden is worried about his political opponents shopping opposition research and the news media writing about Hunter Biden, his son, and some of his business arrangements that he had in Ukraine when Biden was vice president. And so Biden is keenly aware that this opposition research is out there and it's going to come after his son. And as Biden has frequently let everyone know, his other son, Bo, uh, died and he publicly anguished about this. And Biden's really a family man. So this was really probably the biggest factor weighing on Joe Biden's mind on his head was that the political times have changed and that families and sons and daughters and relatives are much more fair game now, mm-hmm. especially in a diffused media, eco- media ecosystem. That's a really good point. Well, your point about times changing, that, that kind of segues into the next uh, uh, question I had, is uh, how did Biden address the question of whether he uh, has too much baggage from being a, a longtime Democratic official in an era when the Democratic Party and Biden himself was much less progressive? I think the answer from almost every candidate across the political spectrum when you bring up baggage is one word, Trump. Like Donald Trump had, you know, so much baggage, he almost needed a separate airliner to carry. Yet he won (laughs) the election. And so candidates now in this Trump era are saying, look, I am who I am. And yes, maybe I have baggage. Everybody's got baggage. So in Biden's view, he doesn't have that, that sort of baggage. And in Biden's view, the country wants to return to a time of greater normalcy, a non-Trumpian normalcy. And therefore, what historically and what is considered by some of his contemporary opponents as a big strike against him, the fact that he's an insider when a lot of voters want an outsider, is actually not true. Biden believes that, no, what people want is a competent person who understands the levels of government and will use them non-corruptly. Now, that's Biden's view. That's interesting. I mean, we certainly saw that in his announcement video this morning, right, Mark? The, it, it focused very heavily uh, on uh, Trump and his comments after the the uh, kind of neo-Nazi rally in Charlottesville and and Biden's revulsion uh, at that, um, kind of coming at and coming into this race with a much more Trump-focused lens than I think we've seen from a number of other candidates. Now, obviously, he has... Um, everyone knows who he is, right? So he doesn't need to introduce himself the way some of the other candidates are. But I thought I thought that was interesting. The reaction on social media was really interesting. Uh, you, you know, you have to look at things through a variety of lenses and different perspectives. Obviously, the the younger, more progressive folks tend toward other candidates and not toward Joe Biden. And a lot of them saw Biden's video as just kind of perplexing and stupid. Uh, however, those who you would consider Joe Biden's base, and understand I'm saying this kind of non-scientifically and just my review of social media, folks looked at this as a good thing. They want to see someone who's going to take it to Trump and who is going to essentially call him a racist. And without calling Trump a racist, that's what Biden did in his announcement. I don't know if it's effective or not, but I do know that a lot of people are talking about it. And one of the lessons of Donald Trump from 2016 is is that you want people talking about you when you're running for office. And people are doing that with Joe Biden, in part because of the video. Absolutely. And now being part of the conversation, obviously launching a presidential bid, uh, uh, 
generates a big part of that. But one of the other concerns that I think we've seen and that uh, you and Natasha have been writing about is a, a concern among Biden and his inner circle about would he be able to raise enough money to run for president? That was a an existential issue in his past campaigns uh, that 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 he couldn't raise the money to keep up with uh, with others in the field. But um, obviously, he wasn't the former vice president at that time. That That's true. And you know, those were different times. And you know, there's a possibility that Biden is actually going to win the expectations game. He has set expectations so low the day before he announced he has a conference call. He tells his donors, look, we are going to be judged in the first 24 hours, the first week on the money we raise. I need your help. And he really sounded the alarm. And a lot of folks don't think he's going to do well on these small dollar donations. But if you look at the which polling, has become such a litmus test for for the 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 Democratic field so far, right? It's it's how many individual donors do I you know the, the, the showing that breadth of support, right? But sorry, I interrupted you. You said look right, at the polling. and I think it's a reasonable I think it's a reasonable standard to apply against a candidate or toward the field, which is that when you have small dollar donors, these are regular people giving five bucks. Mm-hmm. These are not the head of some major law firm. Uh, who employs lobbyists who are getting favors out of you in government. Like these are, you know, mom and pops and regular folks who are giving 5, 10, 15, 20, 50 dollars, something like that. So if you look at the polling and you see that nationwide, Biden is leading, yes, it's not a huge commanding lead, but, you know, 30 points or so, I think it's reasonable to assume that a lot of those folks are going to be inclined to give him money. And if it's just 5, 10, 15, 20 dollars, Biden might actually come out quite well. Yeah. You add to that the fact that a lot of the older institutional donors are from the Obama-Biden era or the Obama presidency, the Obama ticket, do have fond views toward Joe Biden. Things don't necessarily look so bad for him, at least right now, before we see the numbers on the money front. Yeah. Well, broadening out from here, Mark, what just where do you think where do you think this is all going from here? What where where do you think that Biden kind of uh, uh, obviously he comes in as as a front runner, maybe not an overwhelming front runner, but he is leading in in the national polls. But just where, where now that he's in, kind of where where do you see this race going? Uh, and and you know do do you do you think there there's a lot of uh, I, I haven't been able to shake the thought in recent weeks that that Biden is, is getting a little bit of short shrift for his strengths because his weaknesses are so easy and numerous to pick out. Uh, but the fact is that, that he does, you know, he, he, he is a popular guy within the party. Right. I don't know where this is going. I don't think any of us do. <laughs> that, that's is, good. That's good. We have, should all admit that more often. <laughs> yeah. Once you have 20 candidates, I mean, you were looking at a bumper car race with 20 cars. And the ultimate prize is going to be the presidency. So you're going to have a lot of wreckage when it's done. <laughs> and there's going to be a lot of chaos. But understand is that while we are cater to high-information voters, there's a good 30 40% of the electorate, maybe, that's really not paying attention to this stuff very closely. And so that 30% or so that Biden has in the polls, that might not move for quite some time until people start to really focus. Really what we got to look at is... Sounds cliche, but the reality is, is like, let's wait until people actually start voting before we have a better idea of what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Until then, all bets are off. We're in this modern era of completely unpredictable politics. You add 20 candidates to that, as well as, speaking to our earlier point, the phenomenon of small-dollar donations, which can keep candidates alive for far longer and lower the influence of special interests and high-dollar donors. 
Well, now you have a situation where you can have multiple people play on the field for a longer period of time and do more damage to each other and cause more chaos and leave us really wondering, what the hell is going on? <laughs> uh, one, one, more, one more question I have uh, here. Uh, t- tell us a little bit about uh, what, if any, Obama effect that we might see in Biden's campaign in the 2020 contest. Um, the, 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 the former president is not going to be in, endorsing Biden, it seems like, but he did break his silence on, on the emerging race uh, this morning to, to offer praise uh, for, uh, for his former running mate as well. And um, you know, cl- clearly a great deal of Biden's appeal within the party comes from his association with Barack Obama. The place you're going to see it most play out and where you're seeing it play out the most, the Obama factor for Biden, is in South Carolina. That's the first primary where you have a significant portion of the population that's African-American. One of the people we quoted in our story from Biden's announcement day, who is in talks to work for Biden, heck, he might have even been hired by now, pointed out that if you go into black people's homes in South Carolina, you're going to see a picture of Barack Obama. And a lot of them, you might just see President Biden standing in the background. And that really speaks There's to a Freudian slip Biden there, Mark. might be in their living room. Uh, that's a, a bit of a Freudian slip there, Vice President Biden, right? <laughs> oh, yes. I, I guess it's, uh, I wouldn't call it Freudian, but yes, certainly a slip. You're, you're going to see, you're going to see Biden in the background of those, uh, of those pictures. He's going to be a character that people know. And for a lot of black voters, I mean, let's, let's not underestimate the historic nature of the first black president and the fact that Obama had a loyal wingman, a loyal number two guy who always backed him up in Joe Biden. And that really speaks to a lot of African-American voters. At least that's our interviews. That is our reporting. That's what we found in both talking to elite Democrats, consultants, as well as just rank-and-file people. Now, that having been said, Biden's team appears to be spinning a little. They're saying, hey, Obama's not endorsing because Joe asked Barack not to endorse him. Uh, You know, Barack Obama was not going to endorse early in the primary, and everyone knows that. Mm -hmm. So that would be like me asking you, Scott, hey, Scott, don't give me a million dollars. Be like, hey, I didn't ask Scott to give me a million. Well, he doesn't have a million dollars to give. He's not going to give me a million dollars. Twist twist my arm, Mark, I guess. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Well, I mean, Scott, if you want to peel it off, I'm here for it. So uh, one last thing before we let you go, Mark. What's next? Biden's heading up to uh, Philadelphia for a fundraiser uh, later today. He he did his announcement video this morning. Uh, What's next on the docket? What are going to be his big public uh, rollouts over over the next week? Monday is... Vice President Joe Biden or former Vice President Joe Biden's first coming out party as a presidential candidate. It's going to be at a union hall in Pittsburgh. Uh, one of the aides I'd spoken to who worked for Senator Bob Casey in Pennsylvania recalled how in 2018 Joe Biden also worked the room at an event for Casey, a, a union hall in Pittsburgh. And it was like seeing a fish in water. Everyone loved him. So this is going to be Joe Biden in his element, a union hall in Pittsburgh, the Rust Belt, where he can kind of communicate those old values. And we should not do a drinking game where we take a shot every time he says the word Scranton, because we'll probably be drunk by the time the speech is halfway finished. (laughs) Noted. All right. Well, uh, Mark Caputo, thank you so much for for taking the time out of this busy uh, launch day for one of the campaigns you're covering to uh, talk to us a little bit about it. Oh, thank you. It's great to be here. 
They call it Scranton. What? The Electric City. Scranton. What? The Electric City. Lazy Scranton. The Electric City. All right. On to our next data point, which is 12. The White House has so far refused or delayed handing over documents requested by 12 House committees. And that's according to Democrats in the House, the new majority there. We're going to talk a little bit about that fight. Uh, but also how it bears little resemblance to the things Democrats have been hearing about back home during the congressional recess. So here to talk about it, we've got Anita Kumar from our White House team. Hi, Anita. Hi. And Sarah Ferris from our Congress team. She's off into the Capitol, but is here in person today. Yes, I Hi, am. Sarah. Hello. Thank you so much for being here. So, Anita, let's start with this this feud that's that's really getting worse by the day. Uh, you've got on the one hand these uh, House committees newly run by Democrats in the in the majority requesting interviews, documents, you name it, in all manner of oversight investigations. And then on the other hand, you've got the White House uh, that is uh, stonewalling at pretty much every turn. And uh, you, in a story uh, this week, you used the phrase "all out war" to to describe what's happening here. Um, what exactly are uh, the congressional Democrats in the White House fighting about? Like, what are the specific issues? And can you kind of give us some historical context here about how I mean, no White House likes oversight, but it, what's different this time? Yeah. Um, well, so I do think that this week took a different turn. Um, we have been seeing since January that the White House was not eager <laughs> to um, hand over documents or have people testify. But I think what happened this week is we are heading towards court, and we hadn't been doing that before. And so, and that's in a couple different avenues. But let me just take you back. So you're so right that presidents never want to hand over things. They just they're not eager to do that. But the difference this time is, I think that you know in the past, and it doesn't matter which party. You can say Barack Obama, George W. Bush. Those presidents didn't want to hand over things, but they went through the process that they call the accommodation process, which is basically just a negotiation. Well, we don't really want to hand you everything, but we'll give you this. We don't want to meet your deadline. We need some more time, and we'll use another deadline. So they negotiate. It's, it's a negotiation, and that's what's typically happened. Um, what is happening now, though, is different because they're not negotiating. They, The Trump White House doesn't want to negotiate. They're basically just saying when the deadlines come— they don't respond. They sometimes don't even send the uh, customary letter back. They'll just ignore it. So they're not saying... Like ghosting them. Yeah, basically. <laughs> I mean, like a deadline will come and go, and sometimes there's just nothing. Um, sometimes there's a letter that says, here's why we don't think we need to turn over anything. So it's not like, hey, I want to provide you some stuff, but different stuff, or by a different date. We're just not even there at all. And that's really different. And you heard President Trump say this week, I don't want to... I don't want anyone to cooperate with them. And so he kind of flat out said it. And you had asked what topics. It's every topic. Um, I think the thing that they are most upset about, though, at the White House is things that are about President Trump himself. Mm -hmm. So his tax records, his financial records, um, things about his business, uh, things that might relate to uh, the things, internal workings of the White House, like who got a security clearance and who didn't. If you remember, there was all the controversy about his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, getting a security clearance when maybe he shouldn't have been. So some of the policy issues uh, they might be more willing, but those are from the agencies and the departments. It's actually right. the White House that's saying, 
we don't think you should get any of this information. And meanwhile, Sarah, congressional Democrats are are furious about this. Right. And they not only want to have this fodder for 2020 and going after President Trump on all sorts of financial records and personal records and that sort of thing, but on the policy side, issues like family separation at the border, a policy that the Trump administration did carry out and later lied about it and was then later considering it again. This is something that Democrats are are fundamentally concerned about. This is something they've held a lot of hearings about. Uh, there were actually officials at HHS, the Department of Health and Human Services, who refused to come. And Democrats are, are very ready to issue these kinds of subpoenas and take these kinds of action. But they're also afraid that as soon as they issue these subpoenas for some of these domestic issues, people in, on Capitol Hill and people outside of the Hill are going to realize how difficult and protracted a legal battle this is. So they're kind of holding their powder dry for a little bit here, um, at least on, on some of these issues like family separation. There's education department issues that they're really eager to dive into. But it's going to be it, people are going to realize it's not a silver bullet. And that's that's going to be politically bad for Democrats in only the first 100, 120 days of their majority. And Anita, you mentioned court is kind of the next stop here. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, we had sort of court is always out there. But this week, we really <laughs> saw that it's it's front and center. So the president, through his uh, business, has sued uh, a committee, a House committee, um, to because he didn't want to turn over his financial, um, you know, financial paperwork from an accounting firm. Um, that just doesn't happen. People are saying that it probably won't go anywhere, but what that does do is delay this a little bit more. Um, in other ways, it might get there, right? If the if the House issues a, a committee issues a subpoena and the subpoena is ignored, the House can go to a court and say, can you make these people give us the documents? So in that way, it could go to court. But here's the thing. I mean, the thing is that you remember back when it seemed like years ago, but it was only November, when the House uh, went to the Democrats and everybody was like, wow, there's going to be so much paperwork and we're going to learn so much. We're going to learn everything there is to learn about Donald Trump. But what has happened is we're, we're slowly realizing we're not going to learn that much, at least not anytime soon. This could drag into next year. It could be past 2020. Um, it, it's going to take a long time to get to this, to get anything. And e- I mean, even the the process of eventually getting a remedy in the court is, is really long and drawn out, right? Yeah. I'm, I'm thinking back to, to former Attorney General Eric Holder was was uh, uh, held in contempt by, by Congress for not handing over certain uh, materials related to an investigation, but they didn't even get around to that until he was already out of office. He wasn't the attorney general. Yeah, anymore. it was 2016 when I think the bulk of that was done. But actually, there are little pieces of that case that are still going oh on. So, you know, it's 2019 now. And that was, you know, that's been like eight years or something. So it's not going to happen anytime soon. The, the interesting thing about that is once, and I'm not saying whether Donald Trump is going to win or lose, because I don't know. But if the if the administration changes hands, some of the, you know, the administration might the next administration might say we don't we don't care about this issue anymore and so it might just die anyway mm. right congress could change hands and someone might say oh we don't care about this so we think it'll go on for 10 years but it actually might not because some you know because parties change and the next party might not care meanwhile Sarah, uh, you, you've done a lot of reporting and, and examining of just how animated congressional Democrats are uh, by this fight and, and all the myriad issues that they want to dig into and, and, are, and are being stonewalled on. On the flip side, you spent some time uh, recently uh, uh, traveling out into uh, into the, the, the districts a little bit, you know, one, one of these new districts that Democrats now hold that, that comprises part of their majority looking at uh, town halls around the country and the issues that some of these 
uh, new freshman Democrats and Democrats in power in the House are hearing from voters out there. And the investigation piece of it, not not really a big a big part. Right. And Democrats for weeks, even before the Mueller report came out, were very eager to tell reporters uh, bombarding them on Capitol Hill, look, this isn't what the people who voted for me are really caring about right now. They want us to talk about healthcare and infrastructure. Okay, that's a nice political line. Then I went to a Central Virginia district that's held by Abigail Spanberger. She, um, this is the first time Democrats have held that district in a long time. And then I either watched the town halls or talked to um, eight or nine, nine Democrats across the country from California, Connecticut, upstate New York, Minnesota. And in dozens of questions at these town halls, they are not asking about the Mueller report nearly as much as we would think for how big of a deal this is politically. I mean, unarguably, this is the political story of the decade. And then listening to these town halls, they get more questions about Medicare for all, the Green New Deal, than anything related to the Mueller report. And even when they're asking about it, it's generally not impeachment. It's generally about Russian interference in the elections and the ability of a foreign government to uh, interfere in elections again. And it's it's what we've heard a lot from Democrats on the Hill. That's what they've been saying. And then being able to watch some of these town halls, you really do see it's not resonating in the way that uh, a lot of the local issues to, you know, water contamination and, and the potholes in their specific roads. Those are sort of the retail politics you would expect. But these are voters who are paying attention. They know about the Green New Deal and they're choosing to ask about that instead. So what does that mean? Is there is there risk for House Democrats in devoting too much energy to to these these fights with the White House about oversight and documents, or is it is this partly? I mean, the it's it's not coincidence that that um, presidents' parties lose the House so often after they're elected, right? But the it seems like the American public has this desire for check and balance and and like uh, oversight on. Uh, on on a new White House, so how how do you how do you square that? <laughs> yeah, there's certainly a risk for a political backlash, and that's why we saw Speaker Nancy Pelosi say a month before the Mueller report came out that she's not prioritizing impeachment, even if the Mueller report does mm. produce basically exactly what we thought it would, and and maybe even beyond. I mean, I've talked to uh, my colleagues and I have talked to more than a dozen Judiciary and Intel Committee members since the report has come out, and they acknowledge that this is the biggest thing that they've seen since Watergate, and this is something that's very very serious. Um, but at the same time, they've been so careful uh, to to write in that next sentence, talk about healthcare, talk about infrastructure. They want this to be a two part conversation because they're very worried about having a one track mind focused on investigations when that's not what they're hearing about back home. This goes right into what Donald Trump is saying, which is. People don't care about it. When you go out into the country, they care about the things you just what Sarah just said, healthcare and, uh, you know, even infrastructure and uh, the economy, you know, that he's going to talk about the economy so much. And they don't care about this stuff. They're just going to see that Democrats have, are overreaching and that he was exonerated. And um, this is what he's going to campaign on, that they're overdoing it when he knows what Americans uh, want and need. And just to add, uh, what I didn't mention before is that the town halls and, and the folks that I talked to were almost all in vulnerable districts. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of them were held by are held by Democrats for the first time. They won by extremely narrow margins. So these are the districts that Democrats are going to be needing to focus on, or they're going to be let risk uh, losing the House. Right. I I really don't know what to make of this yet, but I wonder how much of it is like that that Trump almost ex just exists in like a parallel universe. For, for voters and that they, they're they like taking in everything they need basically already about him because he's everywhere all the time in the news, online, wherever. And then when they get the opportunity to talk to a member of Congress or vote for a member of Congress, there's there's just this other suite of issues that they want 
to have in the conversation. Yeah, as I think well. the palace intrigue of the White House certainly uh, dominates cable news. It's something that almost has an entertainment value to it for a lot of the American public. It's something that's just so hard to fathom, especially with the drip drip of news that's come out over the last year and a half that I think the splash of this one report uh, has com- completely consumed here, here in D.C. But in, uh, you know, it's just something that that other voters have been seeing for a while. They're not that surprised. They had thought they'd heard the story already. You know, people always ask me, you know, if Donald Trump says something sort of outrageous and then people don't get upset or they don't seem to care or it just kind of goes away. And I think it's partly because it's been two years um, and people are kind of immune to it, right? So I think it's sort of what you said, which is, you know, Trump, there's a, you know, President Trump's doing different things every day and there's always kind of chaos out there. And it's just kind of all in a lump over there, you know, Mm -hmm. and they, it's just too much. They can't decipher it and they're not really going through that. So they might just go back to what matters in their everyday lives. All right. Well, uh, we'll make sure to have both of you back over the next uh, dozen years or so to check in on these court <laughs> fights and the, the, the progress of this, uh, uh, the, this, this oversight issue. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And Anita, thank you for coming in as well. Sure. Thanks. And as always, a big thank you to you, our listeners, for tuning in this week. All right, we're going to turn things over briefly at the end here to one Nerdcast superfan to take us through the credits. Uh, This week, we have Anastasia from Germany, who's going to help us out. Nerdcast is produced by Michaela Rodriguez. Dave Shaw is the executive producer, and their illustrator is Bill Cookman. If you like Nerdcast and you're listening on Apple Podcasts, rate the show and leave a review. It helps new listeners find the show. Thank you, Anastasia. Listeners, we found her because she emailed in to say she was a fan. If you are a fan of the Nerdcast who wants to read the credits, let us know. Shoot an email to nerdcast at politico.com. Once again, thank you so much for listening. We'll talk to you again next week.